Bernie Moreno sent me a stream of text yesterday taking issue with our conversation about him yesterday, saying he's not pandering and we're calling him names and that he's trying to have thorough discussions. I got two things to say in response. One, if you want to be taken seriously, stop pledging fealty to Donald Trump. That wipes you out of serious consideration immediately. You know what he did. You know he's a bad guy and you continue to honor him. And second, Stop pandering. That's what you do. That's what you did in your first failed Senate run. And that's what you've done so far. You want to have a thorough conversation that we cover and talk about? Anytime you want to start, we're ready. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with Laura Johnston, Lisa Garvin, and Layla Tassi. And we all sat in yesterday for a meeting or discussion with the retired Ohio Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor. She explained to our editorial board some of the thinking behind the amendment she is seeking to end gerrymandering in Ohio. She had strong feelings about the failings of the past efforts and reasons why this one could actually work. Laura, what did we learn? Basically, she wants to keep the politics out of it, and that's why she thinks it failed in the past. She wants to pass this amendment. Obviously, she's on board. She's a face of it. She's been working on it. But then she says she's hands off. She's not going to be on the commission. She's not going to be overseeing it. She's not going to be handpicking the commissioners. She just wants to get it done, and then she wants to let the regular people do this. And the idea is you'd have nonpartisan people drawing the lines and it wouldn't be them drawing it wouldn't be them in a back room or a hotel room trying to get the lines the way they want they would hire experts to look at this so you'd have fair districts and she says you know you can vote one way and believe in one thing but when it comes to districting picking fair districts you don't have to be partisan at all and she says we should put our faith in the people she did point out where she thinks the attack is going to come from. Yes. Uh, and she's not buying it. What did she say? She says that the, she thinks the Republicans are going to come after it and saying we're giving it to unaccountable non-elected officials. That right now, if it's in the hands of officials, if you don't <laughs> wait, like it. Think, wait, 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 wait. Think about that, though. <laughs> These are the guys that defied the Constitution, defied the Supreme Court, and they're going to talk about unaccountability. I mean, that's really humor in the I know, extreme. but I feel like they always come back. Well, if you don't like it, you can vote us out of office. We are accountable to the people. But um, obviously, the way that the world works, it's not just a fair fight. I mean, people get give a lot of money. You have a lot of ads. You have campaigning you have name recognition all of these things you have gerrymandered districts <laughs> you have gerrymandered districts. Able, thank you layla and i thank would love you. to be able to vote on matt huffman we don't get to vote on him very a tiny very good district point. in nowheresville elects him and then we're stuck with him lording over the legislature it's just not it's not true she's right i mean look this is a no-brainer it's like issue one this is just a public policy discussion those guys failed miserably mike dewine Every one of them, the, the uh, Keith Faber, the Senate president, the House, Frank LaRose, they all failed. There were two Democrats on there, too. And this is the only way forward is to fix it. I don't understand why the Republicans think they'll be able to beat this. I mean, they got they got body slammed by the whole state on issue one on a similar public policy discussion. And they're going to get body slammed again. No one is going to buy the nonsense that this is unaccountable. It worked in Michigan. It worked great in Michigan. It's worked elsewhere. I just I'm, I'm surprised that they don't see this freight trade coming and get behind it and say, OK, it's fine. Let, let's go. Let's do the right thing. And the idea that they had accountability, like we had elected officials do it and they completely denied 
the Supreme Court. They just basically thumbed their nose at them and said, we don't have to follow what the Constitution demands, what the voters put in place. So this is, you know, we the people, the people voted for this. This was an amendment to the Constitution. So let's elect our fellow people to do the work. Yeah, I, I, this is a, a great idea. I mean, I am sure we will be fully behind it. And the people that are going to attack it are the least credible people in Ohio because they refuse to follow the wishes of the voters in the Constitution. They repeatedly defied the Supreme Court. My only disappointment in Maureen O'Connor is that she didn't put them in jail under contempt charges for refusing to do their duty because they really did fail the voters miserably in that regard. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio voters in November will decide whether to legalize recreational marijuana, but they might not know yet the statute that their vote would create is quite long and detailed with all sorts of things that are supposed to happen. I took a read on it last week. I was staggered by the length of it. So, Lisa, what would the timeline be from people voting to actually being able to get their hands on marijuana legally without a medical card? So if recreational sales of marijuana passes on the November ballot, then we can expect to have recreational sales about 10 months after the effective date, which would be one month after the election. So the effective date would be December 7th of this year. So we're probably looking at recreational marijuana sales right around September of next year. Um, The Division of Cannabis Control, which is under the Department of Commerce, must adopt rules for adult use dispensaries by June 7th of next year. So that's six months after the effective date. If that deadline is missed, anybody in Ohio can sue the state to force them to set up licensing. And this is, you know, to head off the multiple delays that happened when medical marijuana was legalized. It took more than a year for it to finally happen. So um, they are required to license current dispensaries within nine months to sell recreational marijuana. They must award 50 new dispensary licensees to marginalized groups affected by the war on drugs. Standalone dispensaries that are not connected with a cultivator can apply for adult use license at a new location, but then there will be no new license after that for about two years. They want to see what the recreational market looks like. They want to make sure the demand and supply match up there, but there will be no cap on the number of licenses for dispensaries, cultivators, processors, and testing facilities. Tom Heron, who's the attorney representing the Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol, says it's designed to be flexible. And like, you know, like I said earlier, they're not expecting the same delays as medical marijuana, which suffered through many blown deadlines. And they had um, quite a detailed uh, look at homegrown marijuana and, and rules over homegrown pot. Would people be able to start growing it earlier? Would that also take about 10 months? They said that actually you can grow up to six plants. uh, Let's see. I think they can start growing. Yeah. It would go into effect after the effective date of December 7th. So if it passes... You can start growing marijuana in your home on December 7th of this year. Landlords, go ahead. So so even if the state dilly-dallies and plays games, people that are committed to doing it, they could just take matters into their own hands. That's correct. They can grow up to six plants at a primary residence. If 12 plants, if there are two or more people at that residence that are 21 years and older. But if you have a landlord, uh, landlords have the right to ban you from growing marijuana on their property. The, the 
as a statute, as a initiated statute, this doesn't have the force of a constitutional amendment like the abortion amendment. So if the legislature didn't like any part of this, they could simply amend it to to change it. So it'll be interesting to see as this campaign goes forward, if there are elements of this law that they're not comfortable with, whether they'll immediately start planning to tune it. If they tried to throw it out, I think there would be voter revolt like there was on issue one. That would violate the sense of fair play. The voters would have spoken. But I wonder if they'll be tuning up next year in the legislative session. I'm a little, can I ask, why do you think they, they, landlords can, uh, can, can, ban you from growing in, in your unit if, because I thought this is supposed to be to regulate marijuana like alcohol and landlords can't say you can't drink in your apartment. No, but they could stop you from brewing beer in your apartment. I mean, there, there are things, I mean, that, that there's things they can do, I think, to say that's not allowed here. Mm. It can ban you from smoking in your apartment. I mean, but, yeah, that's true. I, the smoking ban makes more sense. But Layla, I thought the same thing when I read that. I thought, yeah. well, but it, it's it's legal to grow marijuana, so what's the yeah, issue? I'm trying to figure out what, is, what are they trying to get at there? What's the What's the harm to landlords? That they're trying to well, landlords might not want it grown on their property because it might make them a target of theft or something. I mean, it's still a property rights issue, I would suspect. Hmm. And I did want to say that the group that's you know against uh, legalized recreational marijuana, Protect Ohio Workers and Families, say this is too much marijuana, too fast. Spokesman Scott Milburn says that science and research are still catching up. And Ohio would benefit from taking a pause to look at the facts. And he said, in the wake of the devastating opioid epidemic, we need to be very careful about the next steps because marijuana is an addictive drug. Yeah, but that's just BS because this group wanted the legislature to pass a law. This group went to the legislature and said, pass the law. We don't want to take this to the voter, but we will if you don't act. And they didn't. And so... If you wanted to have more control over this, they could have passed their own statute that might have slowed it down. Instead, they they decided they're lured and masters. They weren't going to do it. Go ahead and try and force it. I, I think back then they were so drunk with power, they thought we can just throw it out. But after issue one, I'm not so sure. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Staying with marijuana, what will happen to Ohio's medical marijuana program if voters legalize marijuana for recreational use? Is there any reason to continue it? Why would anybody get a medical marijuana card who did not have to? Layla, this was your idea for this. Yeah, story. it's true. I was very interested in the effect on, on the uh, medical marijuana industry if this were to pass. The Coalition to Regulate Marijuana Like Alcohol made up of those medical marijuana businesses say that the legalization of recreational marijuana wouldn't disrupt the medical marijuana program at all. In fact, many of the dispensaries would just add recreational marijuana to their menus that and serve both clientele. But Laura Hancock pointed out that some patient advocates worry that medical marijuana will become kind of an afterthought considering how tiny it's going to it would become compared to the recreational program. Apparently that has happened in other states after recreational use was approved. Laura Hancock points out that the main differences between the medical program and the proposed recreational program would be eligibility and costs. So in Ohio, you have to have one of at least 26 qualifying conditions, and you have to receive a recommendation from a licensed doctor with a certificate to recommend marijuana. It costs money, the card carries an expense, and the visit to the doctor is an out-of-pocket expense. Plus, you have to go through the whole process every year. Recreational marijuana, though, 
would carry an additional 10% sales tax. And there are other fees that medical products don't, don't carry. So patient advocates don't want patients who already have to jump through a lot of expensive hoops to also have to pay the sales tax if they end up having less access to their medical marijuana products. Yeah, I'm still not buying it. I can't imagine people are going to spend the hundred, what is it, hundred bucks, right? To get the card and go to the doctor and do all that when they can just go to a shop and buy it. The tax won't add up. It to depends that, on how it? much you're buying. I, I was thinking about that. I was like, okay, I mean, the, you know, people who use it for medicine are using it every day, probably. Uh, some of them are. So if you're buying that much, that would, that would add up the, the 10% tax and fees. I was very- Sounds like a story for Sean McConnell. <laughs> <laughs> but I was What's the cheapest way to buy my weed? <laughs> One thing I was very curious about is how the passage of recreational use would affect doctors who dumped their traditional medical practices to run clinics based solely on meeting these needs for patients. I, I know one such doctor who was an OBGYN and gave it up to run a marijuana and holistic health clinic. I wonder if doctors are concerned they'd lose patients who would rather skip the expense and just become recreational users. There was one marijuana advocate in, in Laura Hancock's story who said he didn't think so because there is still a stigma associated with marijuana use that people would rather be considered a patient than a pothead. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, if you just go and buy it at the store, there's no record that you bought marijuana. If you're doing it with a medical card, it's on the official records. That's yeah, true. Applies, but but if there's any kind of breach of the data, your name gets out into the to the blogosphere that you're using marijuana. I don't know. I I I just looking at it from an outsider. Uh, I don't have a medical marijuana card. I don't think I would bother jumping through those hoops if if I just wanted to get some marijuana. But if I were like that, I'd be driving up to Michigan where it's legal anyway. So who knows? You're listening to Today in Ohio. Who is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's choice to run the organization that will dole out the opioid settlement money? Is there any chance she will bring transparency to the controversial organization which says it is not a public agency and can violate the Sunshine Law at will. Laura. I don't know her exact take on Sunshine Laws, but my guess is she's not going to be pushing to open anything up. Uh, Alicia Nelson is the first executive director of the One Ohio Recovery Foundation. That organization is pooling together all the opioid settlement money from across the state and is going to spend it on drug prevention, treatment, and recovery. It's a lot of money that they're looking at spending, over a billion dollars, um, $1.8 billion actually in legal settlements from drug companies expected to be paid over the last decade. So she's going to work with the board to invest that money. But you're right. This has been super controversial because De Mike DeWine, the governor, and other state leaders say the foundation isn't a public agency. A nonprofit has been suing Harm Reduction Ohio and and found that um, actually in, in a lawsuit, the Franklin County judge ruled in April the foundation had to follow these open meeting laws. But then, thanks to our state legislature, they passed a two-year budget and said that it doesn't have to be open because it's not a state agency, executive agency, public office. And so that's going to get fought back and forth more, you know, more of our tax money spent to try to keep information from the public. 
Look, we're the transparency people, so we obviously have a point of view on this, but it is absolutely preposterous that anyone would argue that what they do isn't completely public. The state and others sued on behalf of us because of the damage done to the state. It's a government lawsuit. There's a ton of money coming in, and when the government spends money, we have an absolute right to know how they're making the decisions, where the money is going. What they're setting up here is corruption. It's, it's plain and simple. When you go behind closed doors, you are setting up corruption. It's HB6. It's everything bad. And every public official who was saying, I don't think this is public, right up to and including Mike DeWine, they have bad motives here because there's no argument to keep this from being public. And I hope she does speak up and say, yes, let's do it in the public. Who is she? It, so, so in the past, she has worked for DeWine. She was director of Recovery Ohio, which is a cabinet level position. She coordinated the state's response to the opioid epidemic. But she's mostly from the private sector. Obviously, she's got a good relationship with Mike DeWine if he appointed her here. I, I agree with Chris in that. Like, what is the harm in in being public? This is not a private entity that's trying to like buy real estate and you know like out outbid the competition or sell stuff like it, it's supposed to be investing in our state and helping people what is that's the kind of thing that the county health and human services do all the time and those bids should be public the only reason you hide stuff is if you have something to hide i mean that, that you know and look the cigarette money was not spent on cigarette kind of things they used it to prop up the budget and it was a big scandal you know, is that what their plan is? Let's not help the people that are addicted to opioids, which is what's supposed to happen. Let's use this for our pet projects. You know, do we start finding out that there are things going into the, 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 the causes that lobbyists most favor? There's no reason for the secrecy. And Mike DeWine should be first and foremost out there saying, no way, no how. This is a public body. You know, I was thinking about Mike DeWine the other day because we had a story last week about how he's folded his campaign fund, right? He's not running for anything. This is his last term as governor. And and I guess I was reading an op-ed or, or something. And it's like, why doesn't he stick up for all that is good and right in this world? He has nothing to lose. Yeah, I th this one... This one boggles my mind. And the only reason to be arguing for lack of transparency is because they got something to hide. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The beginning of the school year for Cleveland is different in 2023. It's not just about teachers and subjects and transportation. These students have a much more critical worry. Lisa, what is it? Yeah, a lot of high school students in Cleveland are rattled by the deaths last year of three Cleveland students from gun violence, starting with uh, last August, a 16-year-old Devontae Johnson, a football player at Glenville High, was shot on East 113th, and then 16-year-old Andre Wells was shot standing on a sidewalk near James Ford Rhodes High School last September, and then in January, 18-year-old Pierre McCoy was shot at a bus stop near John Adams College and Career Academy. Academy. So student Owen Pennington, he's a sophomore at John Hay High School of, of Science and Medicine. He says 
this is scary. He says, I shouldn't have to be thinking about my own mortality as often as I think about algebra and other classes. He is the class president. He wants to hold safety seminars and incentivize attendance. So the Cleveland School District is working with RTA because a couple of these happened at bus stops and they're working with Cleveland police. They've reviewed the school violence incidents. They want to plan safe routes to and from schools install more surveillance cameras and increase police and security presence on campus. Their focus is going to be on four campuses, John Adams, JFK, Garrett Morgan, and John Marshall High Schools. Pennington said he would like to see volunteer adult ambassadors at nearby transit stops. What I can't imagine beyond the immediate fear is how this changes your perception of the world as you head into adulthood. And Laura and Layla, you got kids that are going back to school around now. Can you imagine if adding to all of the other stuff that is involved in getting them back into it, the swing of things, you're having to caution them on how to avoid getting shot and how, how would that affect their lives? And that's what these Cleveland kids are going through. They're having to figure out how do I navigate getting to school with my life intact and safe? Well, and I mean, I think all parents that the shooting, it, it, this is very different than school shootings, right? Like all parents are bearing that burden and kids are that it's part of school now too. But then to, I, you're not even safe walking to school. You know, you could be shot at any time. It could be a happenstance. And I think the quote that Pennington gave about thinking about his mortality as much as algebra is hugely telling because how can you concentrate on your studies and worry about your future if you're literally worrying about staying alive? Yeah, this is the kind of toxic stress that is debilitating for kids under this, you know, sort of duress. It really stands in the way of their their future prospects. And it doesn't even have to be students involved. I mean, that one, I think it was Glenville, they were put on lockdown because of a shooting that happened nearby. So it's not just students, but just the, the violence in the immediate neighborhood as well. Yeah, it's a, fr- it, it, this story was frightening because it's, it's a whole extra element of danger for the kids going to school. And Layla's right, that, that kind of toxic trauma impedes the ability to learn. I mean, they have tools they can use to try and reset the brain but just that trauma is going to hold these kids back. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Sickle cell is a punishing condition that affects a great many people, and the Cleveland Clinic is one of the first trial locations for an intriguing treatment. Layla, how does it work? In this clinical trial, they're they're using gene editing to modify a patient's own blood-forming stem cells to lessen the effect of sickle cell disease and decrease pain. Sickle cell is an inherited blood disorder that leads to the production of these abnormal hemoglobin. That's the protein responsible for transporting oxygen in the blood. In patients with sickle cell, the hemoglobin becomes very rigid, sticky, and misshapen, and that prevents oxygen from reaching organs. And it can cause bone fractures and liver failure, can cause stroke, heart failure, and a bunch of other conditions. In fact, almost half of all patients with sickle cell will die before the age of 45. Right now, there are only a few medications and bone marrow transplants available to treat this disease. But while searching for possible treatments, researchers noticed that sickle cell patients who did well naturally had high levels of fetal hemoglobin. That's the hemoglobin inside babies when they're born. 
So they set out to find ways to increase fetal hemoglobin in sickle cell patients, and researchers turned to gene editing technologies technologies known as CRISPR and Cas12. Together, these make very, very precise, permanent changes in the DNA of living organisms, and they can target the part of the gene that produces fetal hemoglobin and enable the body to produce high levels of it. So patients in this sickle cell study are given drugs to stimulate their bone marrow to produce more stem cells. The stem cells um, are cells from, from which all the other cells with specialized functions are generated. And then chemotherapy destroys the study participants' remaining bone marrow cells and creates room for the edited bone marrow cells that are later returned to the patient's bodies. So that's how this trial works. And this is the first time this type of gene editing technology has been used to target and edit human blood stem cells in a clinical trial. The clinic was among the first of 23 trial locations in the U.S. and Canada to, to treat pa- patients in the study. UH, Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital, and two Columbus hospital systems are also in the study. Layla Latassi, ladies and gentlemen, she's not a doctor, but she plays one on the podcast. (laughs) You're listening to Today in Ohio. Laura, please talk about the aim for the Cleveland Cultural Garden series we've recently launched. So this is the brainchild of our data reporter, Zachary Smith, and his editor, Rich Exner. He wanted to highlight the different gardens as a way to talk about the demographics of Cleveland, which I think is pretty genius. So one world day is Sunday. That's the garden's annual big celebration when they have all sorts of activities and you celebrate the diversity of Cleveland and the gardens that run all along Martin Luther King Avenue Boulevard, all the way from basically 90 to University Circle. And it's Rockefeller Park. It's a, it's a beautiful area you've probably driven through. I don't know that I've ever stopped in any of them to really take a good look, but that's what Zachary's doing. He's describing the gardens. He's talking about the demographics of the people that they represent. There's 35 countries uh, now in the gardens. At least they will be with the dedication of the Pakistani garden on Sunday. They expect another 10 to be added over the next decade or so. And to have a garden in the cultural gardens, you have to have an active population in Cleveland, which makes it really interesting. And that's why there were so many Eastern European groups that first started, and now it's expanding to different parts of the world. Yeah, it, it, it was a nice kickoff, and I think this is the kind of story people like to read as a break from all of the terrible news, including the story we'll be talking about next. Uh, it's a, it's was a good kickoff, and we'll be running this for months to come. And then our, they, we did the Hebrew Garden was in yesterday, and that was the first one that was dedicated after the Shakespeare Garden. That was the very first one. And I believe it was 1926 is when the Hebrew Garden opened. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll be doing – we'll have a couple of a week uh, for the next couple of weeks. I love walking at the cultural gardens I, and nobody's ever there when I'm there. Um, I usually park at Hungary and then I go up the hill through the Italian one. But yeah, it's a beautiful garden and very walkable if you've never been. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. One of the most viral news stories we've covered of late, I mean, it has been international, is the case of the teenager who was convicted of murder for ramming her car at 100 miles per hour into a building with passengers in it. Lisa, how much time must she now serve in prison? 19-year-old Mackenzie Sherilla of Strongsville was sentenced to two life terms in prison, no parole for 15 years because the terms will be served concurrently. These uh, were for the July 22. 20- 
22 deaths of 20-year-old boyfriend Dominic Russo and 19-year-old Davion Flanagan. In a statement that she read in court, Sharilla apologized to their family. She said she didn't mean to kill them. She would have never done it on purpose and that Dom was my soulmate. Judge Nancy Market Russo said, you know, that I know the pain in this room wants the harshest sentence to be imposed. And she even said, I don't think Sharilla will be out of prison in 15 years. If she does get out or when she gets out, her driver's license is suspended for life. She also said that you're responsible for the pain in this room. Christine Russo, who was Dominic's mother, said she doesn't know why, you know, Sharilla would have wanted to kill their son. Sharilla was actually living with the Russos for several months leading up to this accident. And then Jamie Flanagan's mom and his sister Divine also testified. They said they wanted the maximum sentence because Sharilla always takes the easy way out. Well, the maximum sentence would have been consecutive instead of concurrent. So, so the judge did give her a bit of a break. I was surprised the judge said, I don't think she'll be out in 15 years because yeah. I would think this is a case where she would. I mean, she was, she wasn't 18 yet. She was close, but she's a, she's a kid still. And 15 years is a big chunk of the, her life. And I would think that the parole board would look at that and realize uh, that she clearly was having a, a pretty serious breakdown. We'll have to see in 15 years, but it, she will be paying for this horrendous internationally famous crime. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That does it for the Tuesday episode. Laura, we don't have Courtney tomorrow, so who's filling in? Will it be Rick Rowan? And I believe muted. so. Okay, believe we'll so. see. Well, thanks, Special Laura. Thanks, guest. Lisa. Thanks. <laughs> we'll see. Thanks, Layla. It's a mystery guest. We'll find out. It's a mystery guest. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe it'll be Bernie Moreno. No, just kidding. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We'll be back Wednesday.